Welcome back, creeps. Hey, y'all. Welcome to another episode of Weekly Creep. This is us. Yeah. I'm With Adam. you in your ear. No news this week. Another very boring week for us. But we do have a good story for you. And Dulce has a tarot card. Yes. Tell us your thing. <laughs> My tarot card? Yeah. Got it. <laughs> All right. So today, my tarot card, and for y'all, is the Seven of Cups. The Seven of Cups. So today's message for y'all is, and it's a good one. It's a good one. Today is a day to dream of possibilities. Imagine if there were no limitations to stop you. Dream big. There's no need to be realistic or practical. Exercise your imagination Every amazing thing you've created began as a dream. Cool. Yeah. Very positive and uplifting. Mm-hmm. The image is very positive, too. It's just a guy looking at seven cups filled with just items, different items that are oh. symbolisms of different things. So it's almost like, here are all your options, man. All you got to do is just choose. <laughs> right on. Okay, so today we will be talking about a story that I knew very little about. I knew nothing about, honestly. Um, I really only found out about it because I think, like, I have seen other podcasts talk about it, but I've never actually heard the story. So I was like, well, let me take a quick look. So we're talking about 966 Lindley Street. Okay. Never heard of it. No, and, and neither had I. And it's, for the most part, the... Like the activity takes place over like I think six weeks and it's very like packed and punchy stuff like like rapid firing stuff. Yeah. Um but this week we're gonna ease us into it a little bit. Okay. Some background on the family and stuff like that. The book that I use is called The World's Most Haunted House. The true story of the Bridgeport poltergeist on Lindley Street by I did William see that. J. i did see that lying around the house yeah i don't agree with the title but like (laughs) you know i get it it's clickbait (laughs) okay so is this the world's most haunted house definitely not is it a good story yes full of misery though i will say that so get ready for an emotional roller coaster of an introduction okay Jerry and Laura Gooden moved into 966 Lindley Street in Bridgeport, Connecticut in 1960 after they had gotten married in the February of that year. Jerry was 41 and Laura was 36 and the house was a small one-bedroom bungalow with a basement. They were kind of like, for the times, I feel like they were a lot older getting married or whatever. Yeah, I don't know what the story was before that, but as a kid... Jerry was planning to join the priesthood and then ended up after high school in the Air Force because it was like the Depression and they needed money. But he maintained his like, you know, devout Christian isms or whatever. Like he was very pious throughout his whole life. He ended up being a maintenance man for a manufacturing plant in Bridgeport. He was known as a very down to earth, reasonable person. And one example of his good character that was given in the book was that when he was a scout leader, he convinced a local shop owner to give the less fortunate boys shoes for free, saying, let's put them on the right path to being future customers. 
rather than them have to steal the shit and just get in trouble and they're like all go to shit you know what i mean okay yeah so he does definitely sound like a a good dude laura was from a native american background and was described as lacking social skills tending occasionally to be loud and high strung she grew up kind of isolated because there was no other kids her age around her but when she met Jerry, they both fell madly in love with each other. That's nice. Yeah. And the reason why I said, like, it'll come clear later on. But yeah, she basically just, there was no kids physically around her. I don't think wherever she grew up. And so she just was one of those kids that kept herself entertained and was in the company of adults. like A lot so, of the time. Yeah. Okay. Which obviously led to her lack of social skills and maybe strange behavior, you know? In October 1961, Laura gave birth to a little boy who they named Jared Jr. Their family was complete. Sadly, at around six months old, they found out that little Jerry had cerebral palsy. But that didn't stop Laura and Jerry from doing everything in their power to give him the best life they could afford. Jerry actually said they had literally filled two station wagons full of clothes for him to, like, that didn't even fit. You know what I mean? Like, they were planning ahead so much. They were Aww. like, let's just fill everything up. Yeah. And they also, like, when they found out that he did have cerebral palsy because they had been to a doctor and he was like, no, 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 he's fine, he's fine. And then later on they found out that he was not fine. And they ended up having to pay for, like, physical therapy sessions and all, like, 100% themselves because the government didn't allow them like basically they didn't qualify for government assistance because they owned their house okay so it wasn't that they had like x amount of money it was just that the house was in their name wow yeah one of those dumb fucking rules and even like the brace that the kid needed because the kid couldn't support his own head like that's how severely disabled he was so they ended up having to pay 500 dollars for a special brace just so as he could sit comfortably and like that was just one of the expenses like and they had to get special chairs and stuff like that. And it's not like they lived a monastic life by any means, but they were doing all of this off Jerry's maintenance man salary. There was nothing they wouldn't do for their baby, though. Like they pureed all his meals because he couldn't chew or anything. And Laura even had to wear a special metal reinforced girdle to help her carry him around because they wouldn't even hire a babysitter. Well, they probably couldn't afford one. What not as in like they wouldn't leave him with family. They just took him everywhere and like they were happy to do it. It's not like he was a burden or anything, but I think yeah. they were so protective over their little boy. I see. That he was literally on her hip wherever they went. Oh wow. Yeah. Then to add to that, Laura's elderly mother came to live with them because her brother couldn't take care of her anymore. The family adjusted and all slept on the floor of the living room while Laura's mother took their bed until they managed to get a rollaway bed. But for four years, Laura took care of both Jerry Jr. and her mother while Jerry was at work. And then like he would come home and help throughout the night because they didn't get a solid night's sleep because they would have to get up and uh, change Jerry Jr. or feed him or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then Laura's mom eventually did have to go and live in a home for the last two years of her life. But even then, Laura would take Jerry Jr., put all the stuff in the car and go and visit her almost daily as well. Yeah. So it was just constantly looking after other people. Yeah. And again, this house, and this will come into play later as well, not to 
talk shit about the house or anything, but it was tiny. Well, yeah, you're th- you're talking a one bedroom house. Yeah. For four people for a good while. Yeah, and so it was because the rooms. It's not like it was even a big one bedroom house. So I have the layout in the book. They provided like diagrams in their room. They would have like their double bed. And then Jerry Jr. slept in a cot right beside the bed. So that's how intimate they were as a family. Like they literally all stayed in the one room. And then for that brief period before they were able to get the rollaway bed for um, Laura's mom, they were all just lying on the floor in the sitting room of the house. Yeah. In 1967, things took a turn for the worse when Jerry Jr. caught a cold after a trip to Massachusetts. His health quickly deteriorated and he was brought to hospital where they did everything they could. But eventually they called a priest in to give the little lad his confirmation and all that before he passed away on September 27th, 1967. Strong in their faith, the couple took refuge in the fact that, quote, he was an angel because he never sinned. With an ordinary person, there is always a possibility of sin. That was a quote from Jerry himself, but it was a harrowing experience for them nonetheless. I could imagine. Yeah, like this little lad was literally their entire life. Yeah. For I think six years. And then, you know. And then gone. Yeah. And another quote that I actually didn't include here was like, it was obviously it was super sad, but they were saying like, it didn't matter to them how long he lived for. Jerry was like, we would have taken care of him until he was 100. Like, you know, they just they were so in love with him. He would be the only child that Laura ever gave birth to as well, because in some weird, morbid coincidence, her doctor had actually found a tumor in her womb or ovaries. It didn't specify a few months earlier, and she was scheduled to have a hysterectomy the day after Jerry Jr.'s funeral. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And obviously, like that, his death was a complete surprise. So they, you know, um, but she decided to go ahead with it anyway. Right. Jerry Sr. was like, no, look. Like, this is for your health. Like, right. You know I mean? It's important. Yeah. And while she was in hospital recovering, Jerry Sr. had been visiting little Jerry's grave every day to pray and just grieve either before or after visiting Laura while she was in the hospital. And as soon as she was able to, she began to go with him every day. They also had a kind of a shrine in their living room devoted to their lost son. And for six months, this behavior continued. It was kind of obsessive and a little bit in my a bit like look they're grieving parents but it was a bit intense i feel like yeah like the only picture that they had of him was him in his casket and stuff oh wow you know which back then i feel like that was a much more normal thing but anyway six months later laura decided enough was enough they had spoken to their priest about the idea of adopting and finally felt that the time had come to get the ball rolling okay the priest actually said it to them as they were in the cemetery burying Jerry Jr. He was like, so have you thought about having another kid? Like, oh, wow. Yeah, I thought that was, again, I guess different was, time. I yeah, they're like, well, I mean, you guys are getting up there. Yeah. That's I mean, probably the mentality. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, because, I mean, she would have been 42. Yeah. He would have been late 40s. Uh-huh. One day in May 1968, Laura called Jerry at work around 10 a.m. to inform him that a four-year-old girl in Ontario, Canada, was going to be their daughter. Oh, just like that? Just like that. Damn. Jerry said, so they did actually, they got like a, they would get pictures and like possibilities. Uh Uh-huh. 
So about a month beforehand, she was one of the possible possible upcoming adoptions. Okay. But anyway, they just got a call and they were like, hey, you're in. <laughs> okay. Jerry said, quote, I grabbed my coat and hat and I left the shop and told people, I'm going to Canada. Goodbye. Good luck. And God bless. <laughs> I only had 30 or $40 in my pocket. As I ran by, people asked me if I needed money. People gave me, it must have been $100. So <laughs> everybody was like so excited. For wow. Them. That's nice. Yeah. And they were not prepared for the trip. He swung by the house and picked up Laura, who was there waiting with all their bags, like ready to go. But their car was in bad shape and it ended up taking them 18 hours to get where they were going. Now, I've looked into the because Bridgeport, Connecticut to either Toronto or Ottawa should have, it only shouldn't taken, have taken that long, no, like nine or 10 hours max, even back then, I think. But it took them 18 hours. Ooh. They were determined. They were like, we are not fucking stopping. Yeah. And according to the Goodens, when they finally met their new little girl, a four year old Native American girl named Marcia. Marcia, not Marcia, she ran straight to them and they were all instantly head over heels in love with each other. Aww. Jerry told her he was going to build her her very own bedroom and he did. In their little tiny house, he converted the large closet in his and Laura's room as soon as he got a chance and they were all happy. That's so, so sweet. Yeah, and even like, maybe it's the, I don't know, construction nerd in me, like he... <laughs> walled off the the door to the closet in their room and gave her her own like door yeah into the kitchen like you know what i mean yeah it was really nice gave and, her like a pri like some privacy yeah and they overloaded it with anything she wanted like apparently she had an astounding number of stuffed animals <laughs> <laughs> sounds like me yeah if you let bit. me i won't <laughs> <laughs> this is where it kind of gets a bit like you know just i didn't know what was correct whatever i tried to do as much research as i could there's not a huge amount of detail surrounding marcia's background other than that she was the youngest of nine children and severely mistreated i am very skeptical of any old-fashioned adoption agencies especially when it comes to uprooting children and crossing borders etc but we're assuming that this was the best course of action for this little girl at that time i'm only saying that because Stuff like this used to happen in Ireland and it would be, you know, done through the Catholic Church as a, well, it's the best thing for the mother or it's the best thing for the child. And it turned out that they were just selling babies yeah. to wealthy Americans and the family would be told, oh, yeah, no, your child died. Sorry. No, it makes sense, especially because if this is a Native American child and separating families was just something that it was yeah. governments do. Yeah, uh, particularly back then in Canada with Native American families, like they were severely mistreated. And I know that from listening to um, what's the podcast someplace underneath. They did an amazing series on that whole issue. So anyway, we're just assuming that it was all for the best for everybody involved. And one of the reasons the Goodens had been chosen for as her parents was because Laura's background was also native american now again the author of the book william j hall said uh she was bohemian and cherokee but when i looked into this i found that the actual definition of bohemian because i didn't know like it's just a thing that people say oh it's so bohemian when i looked into it 
Bohemia was an area of Europe roughly where the Czech Republic is today. Yes. So I'm not really sure what the author was getting at. I think maybe he meant like, oh, she's part Bohemian and part Cherokee. But with all that being said, I have zero knowledge on Native American people, places, tribes, beliefs. Hopefully one day I'm just trying my best to not misrepresent anyone, you know? Yeah, it looks like it's it's an area in Czech Republic still. Yeah, it's still regarded. And it's also like the people, the actual Bohemian people I have in my brief research for this were compared to like the Romany people, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then just to further confuse everything, Laura said that Marcia was, quote, full-blooded Seneca. But I couldn't find Seneca reservations on any Ontario maps today. Am I hyper-focusing on these little points? Yes. But these are the little things that I like to clear up when I'm doing it. And I couldn't. So anyway, little Native American girl named Marcia. They embraced her and they all got to work just being a regular little family. But they did like they did point out that they never thought of her as a replacement for Jerry Jr. or anything like that. And when she was old enough, they told her like, yeah, you did have a little brother. It's not like they just swept him under the rug or tried to pick up where they left off. The one fault, though, that everyone picked up on from very early on in their relationship was just how overprotective they were of little Marcia, particularly Laura. Laura would walk her to and from school. She carried her books. She would walk her home for lunch and then walk her back again. She didn't let her cross the road and generally just kept her with them at all times. Much like how they had been with Jerry Jr. How yeah. they had to be with Jerry Jr. Uh-huh. So in that respect, I guess people probably didn't notice because Jerry Jr. needed that kind of attention. Yeah. But now that Marcia is an independent little girl... People are like, oh, well, maybe she needs some friends, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she didn't have any friends. Because much like Laura, growing up, she was isolated. Oh, and yeah, surrounded by adults all the time. Yeah, so Laura was like, well, she doesn't need friends. Like, I didn't have friends. Why would you need friends? Oof. Yeah, and she became pretty reclusive and shy and withdrawn. The little and, girl did? Yeah, Marcia. Okay. The one, fr- like, quote-unquote friend that they mentioned was the daughter of... Laura and Jerry's friend who they would come over to the house a few times a week or like swap houses and go play cards. Her name was Rosemarie. Again, Laura didn't see the problem because that's exactly how she was. But when Jerry's hours were cut back at work, they had to send her to public school and it was awful. Like, I don't know that she was bullied in the private school or whether she just was a bit of a loner because her mom would come and fucking pick her up for for lunch and everything. But in public school, she was really badly bullied. They called her awful racist names and made fun of her just for being different. And after a year of this bullying, she was actually beaten up by some little arsehole boy who kicked her so hard that she needed a pelvic brace. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, you know, she was fine. Like, she recovered and all. But, like, the fact that Laura and Jerry were so... Um, overprotective to begin with this was like no that's it like no more yeah so she was homeschooled from that point by a district appointed tutor okay. not laura when i read it i was like oh god like this is where it all goes wrong but no the the tutor and her actually had quite a, a nice relationship and she said like no she was just a lovely ordinary little girl like yeah okay in 1968 we're gonna go back a little bit <laughs> when marcia first arrived at her new family home in 1968 
Jerry and Laura started to notice just odd little things like here and there just going missing, like minor annoyances that were easily blown off, like as just being tired or forgetful. But over the next few months and years, like one of those things, like those weird coincidences that you were talking about, like individually, nothing strange. Like, oh, where did I put my keys or where's this thing that I just put down and now I can't. But then when they thought back on it after a few months or a couple of years, they're like, this happened all the time. Yeah, <laughs> like, like as a collection. Yeah, it was and like... And the frequency, yeah. Yeah, like we are not that forgetful. And then Marcia started hanging out with Rosemary when her parents started coming over like a few times a week to play cards. Straight off the bat, Marcia was very quiet and they would literally be sitting at opposite ends of the couch in silence. Do you remember having to do that bullshit when you were a kid? Like my parents, friends, they have a kid the same age and... You would just be told, oh, go in and play with this random person. Yeah. And you'll be friends because you're the same age. Guess what, mom? None of my friends are those kids. They were always fucking weird. I was like, oh, you want to look at sport? No. <laughs> I don't want to look at sports things. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Whatever. So I do feel bad for both kids in this situation. Yeah. But one night, Rosemary was sitting on her end of the couch when she felt the couch start to like shiver or vibrate and then it slowly started to lift off the ground just her end mind you it lifted up a decent height off the ground kind of swayed there for a minute and then slowly drifted back down terrified rosemary looked over at marcia who was just looking back with this weird nervous smile like <laughs> and apparently she became known for this weird awkward nervous smile later but I'm just picturing this as like a Pixar film scene. <laughs> like, you know, he's <laughs> just like, ha, ha. Anyway, Rosemary ran into the kitchen to tell the grown-ups and they just laughed her off thinking she just wanted attention. She said, oh, kids, they're so dumb. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> like floating couch. <laughs> Slowly, however, Marcia and her did become friendly. I don't know if friends is the exact word you would call it, but they would talk to each other and actually hang out and play. And Rosemary recalled several times coming over to the Gooden house to find Marcia in her bedroom, sitting cross-legged on the floor, eyes closed, rocking back and forth, talking softly in a strange language. Marcia told her that she was talking to her grandfather, who was a much-respected chief, and was not happy that she had been taken from their home. She missed him a lot, she said. She was four and a half when she was adopted, remember? So, like, she had plenty of time to grow these relationships, you know? And she also knew that she was the only one of her nine children, of, of her nine siblings, sorry, that had been taken. And like, she was old enough to know that, like, this isn't right. I see. You know, so all this stuff made her rightfully very sad. You know, I think she would dwell on this kind of stuff when she yeah. was alone as well. That makes That makes sense. For me, it sounded kind of comforting like that. If there was this communication between her and her grandfather, like at least they had that, you know? Yeah. If it's a possible thing or whether it was just a coping mechanism, I don't know. I'm choosing to think it was some telepathy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know what that was. <laughs> Another thing that Marcia told Rosemary was that her teddy bears, again, of which she had a lot, were her only friends, but she would talk to them. Her army of teddy bears. Her army, yeah. And according to, Mar or according to Rosemary... She had developed the skill of making it appear that she that they spoke back to her. 
So like some sort of ventriloquist kind of. Oh, He's I obviously see. just good at like, you know, yeah. making it, playing the part. In November of 1971, the banging started. It would start as light tapping and work its way up to a loud patterned banging. It could start at any hour of the day or night and go on for a good while and then just stop as mysteriously as it had begun. Jerry thought it might have been the family that lived nearby because they had kids and motorcycles. (laughs) Hoodlums, clearly. (laughs) But the banging lasted like this on and off for a couple of months. And then like sometimes it would stop for two weeks and then start again. But it would always start in November for whatever reason. The following year, November 1972, started again. And they thought maybe it was these kids like trying to prolong Halloween festivities or you know, any like just playing a prank or doing something. Okay, okay, I buy it. Yeah, and so Jerry, like, they called the police. They were friendly with a few of the police officers. Like, it's a small town, right? Like, anyway, the police came over, couldn't find anything. The banging went on for hours, on and off, for weeks again. Jerry's friend, John Holsworth, was a cop, and he lived, I'm pretty sure, like, just right across the street, and he suggested that they record the noises one night. So they did at like 3 a.m. or something. The noises started and they went on for like two and a half hours. And apparently it sounded like the noises were following them from room to room. I think they are like public domain, these recordings. But the website that the author of the book set up to back up these things has since been closed. So I wasn't able to find them. But eventually they got the local fire department involved. City officials came out to check gas lines. Geological factors were checked with like the weather department. They checked local construction sites. Jerry took apart the pipework thinking there was maybe an animal stuck or something. No answers whatsoever. They like literally exhausted all possibilities. And again, around the same time, everything just picked up again in 1973. So I don't know, like I'm thinking maybe January or February, everything would die down mm-hmm. and then that would be it. But either way, time just went on. It would just stop. And they'd be fine again. One night in the summer of 1974, Laura said that she saw a disembodied hand in the window. So, like, just somebody pressed their hand against the window. She's like, what the fuck is that? They ran outside. They went to check. Obviously found nobody. In early autumn, one evening, she answered the door after hearing three loud knocks. These are isolated events completely. Obviously nobody was there, but... There was wet footprints on the porch, even though it was a completely like dry night. Okay. This to me is one of the creepiest, spookiest things that can happen. I don't like wet feet. Yeah, like I've heard so many examples of it. Okay. Now, like in different stories, like random personal ghost stories, other things. Ectoplasm. Ectoplasm. Like going back to. <laughs> Are you making fun of me? A little bit. Uh, going back to like Guy Playfair and the what's it the the Pontefract poltergeist stuff yeah. like that remember like those random pools of water oh yeah the wet stuff yeah yeah and I'm like is there some kind of connection there or what but it just gives it more of a like a human feel or like a physical fact that like yeah fair enough poltergeist activity. like a footprint it's, it's literally a footprint that you can see. It's something tangible that's been left behind. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, 
poltergeist activity obviously is scary like if something started happening here i would lose my shit like if yeah. oh look the cup flew off the table yeah but usually ghostly things it's like you have to have seen it otherwise there's literally and all you're left is a memory yeah and that's exactly. literally li- yeah that's literally it and you can't touch a memory yeah but wet footprints it's like you oh, can touch man. the wet footprint yeah this is like monster territory for me now it's like, yeah. you know what i mean like who left these footprints yetis who knows wet foot bigfoot (laughs) (laughs) but anyway it's just like so much more than just random angry energy like (laughs) so november rolls around again and with it the mysterious banging the family were in the living room on the 21st of november it was a thursday evening and they're eating dinner with the holsworths from across the street or somewhere nearby (laughs) And they hear glass breaking in the bedroom. They go in to check and they find that it's the lower pane of the window had been broken. The interior pane. The outside of the window was completely untouched. Whoa. And again, I feel like this is all I do now. But going back to like the people in the attic and I'm pretty sure the Enfield case, it was to break something like that means you have to be in between that. Because it was broken inwards as well. The following evening, as the family settled in for a night's worth of TV and relaxation, they suddenly heard a noise coming from the master bedroom. They all go to investigate and discover that the blind had rolled itself up and the curtains were lying on the floor. The rod had been like ripped off the wall or had fallen or something. They think it's odd, but they just put everything back, go to leave the room. But before they even get out the door, the curtains are on the floor again and the blind is shot back open again. Mm. I don't know if they actually spoke about it, but they just decided it's probably best if you just go back to watching TV and all was fine. Yeah. For about 30 minutes. Oh. And then the curtains were ripped from the kitchen door and they were thrown on the floor. And Jerry said, whatever it is, it clearly doesn't like curtains. (laughs) He was like trying to lighten the mood, I think. But it's interesting that he actually acknowledged it as something rather than just... Well, this is certainly a random coincidence. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just like that, he was like, well, whatever this thing is that's bothering us, it's trying to prove a point, basically. Then the knocking started. They sat there in their recliners in the living room as this slow, quiet knocking became a rhythmic, somehow intelligent cacophony of timber-splitting roars that seemed like the very house they sat in was trying to dismantle itself. The tensions grew and they waited with their hands pressed over their ears until finally it stopped. Nobody spoke of it. They just turned off the TV, got ready for bed and went to sleep because the next day they were driving over to Jerry's cousin's house, which was a day trip that they frequently did. Now, I can only imagine like the tensions within the house like that night. Can you like they the intelligence that they spoke of was that like they would try to find the source of the thing and it would like move or seem to come from somewhere else, like interior walls, exterior walls. Yeah. They could never find it. So just sitting there feeling like this was like some sort of attack on your on your mental health, basically. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And like Jerry would sit there trying to be, you know, the man of the house. Like, no, I'm not, I'm not scared of anything. But even him by the end of it, like was just sitting there with his hands over his ears. Yeah. And there was nothing they could do about it. Right. So then when it did eventually stop, they would just be like, all right, good night, everybody. Like, 
carry on normal like this. Let's just go to bed. I can't exactly remember where his cousin lived, but I think it was New York. I'm not actually sure if it's said in the book. They, It's just, it was like an hour or two's worth of a drive. They would stop off in this little church for mass that they liked and then visit with Jerry's cousin. Then they go and do a big grocery shop. I don't know if it's like they would go to a grocery store that they didn't have nearby or something, but it seemed to be a nice little, like just family day out that they would do. Yeah, that sounds nice. Yeah. I like H-E-B. Yeah, that's in my head. That's what I'm picturing. It's like they only have Kroger nearby. So they went to HGB in New York and then they would come back with like the full car. They got home that afternoon around 4.30. And as they're unloading groceries, Jerry notices that Marcia's TV in her bedroom had fallen from its shelf and it's just lying face down on her bed. He put it back and went into the kitchen to help Laura. But when he gets there, literally like two steps and he would have been there. Dishes just start lifting out of the sink and being thrown on the floor, smashing all over the carpet. Stunned, Jerry just bent down to pick up the pieces. Like that was his natural reaction. He's like, oh, got to get back, like clean everything up, be normal again. As he bends down, the knives from the block mounted on the wall slid out and flew at him. Whoa. All five of them. Holy shit. He covers his face and ducks. Laura kind of backs out of the room completely and they all miss. They all just like hit the floor or something. He goes over to look at the knife block to see what happened. Like, oh, maybe it just needs some oil or something. I don't fucking know. I think that's the last thing <laughs> yeah. it fucking needs. But as he's looking at it, it's being ripped off the wall. But it's screwed in. So this thing, whatever it is that's pulling it off the wall, is struggling against the screws and he's watching it pulling apart from the wall and then finally it releases and gets thrown at him and he manages to catch it wow but again this thing struggled with the screws and all so it was like he had time to prepare that's interesting yeah and then they just continued putting groceries away it like, show, it, i think it's it. so okay. interesting how it's a limitation yeah that's what i you know was what I mean? thinking as well it's like uh, you, you bastard like exactly come on. and then again just the casual like oh well i've caught the knife block now better put these groceries away yeah so laura's in the kitchen and jerry goes out to grab more groceries from the car and i think this whole time marcia is actually asleep in the car still because she had fallen asleep on the long drive uh-huh. y'all better go get her because she's probably cooking in that damn car no no, no it's november in oh Connecticut. Okay. yeah yeah it's fine she's frozen she's now not- yeah <laughs> go get her so as Laura is in the kitchen on her own, putting things away, she hears something behind her and she turns to see the table flip itself over, sending groceries flying. Literally eggs broke all over the walls. The, again, this carpet throughout this whole house. It's all egg yolk in the carpet now. And then as she's standing there screaming, the fridge almost delicately rises up in the air about six inches, turns a little bit and then gently gets placed back in the wrong position like very purposefully like no no no, i moved this like fuck you yeah yeah yeah. the tv next to it because they have a giant tv that they use as part of their countertop that slowly tilts forward before slamming down so hard on laura's foot that she starts bleeding profusely oh my god yeah remember this is 1974 the fridge weighed 300 pounds apparently for some fucking unknown reason and i can only imagine that the tv probably weighed about as much as a car as well yeah 
And again, it's that purposeful slow tilt forward and then wham down on her foot. Jerry had managed to, he just threw the bags on the little, they had a couch in the screened in porch. So he throws whatever groceries he had on there, runs in, gets Laura sat down. They bandaged her foot. They had to bandage it twice because she had bled so much that the... She bled through the first. She bled through the first lot of bandages. And things quieted down for a while, thankfully. Small things continued to happen like that evening. Jerry got up to turn off the light in the kitchen and as he was coming back in, the table just flipped over. Like, again, I can't stress enough how small this area is for the table to be able to flip over. Later on, he was making coffee. He's walking back out. Table flips over again. And so apparently calm, just like nonchalantly hands the coffee cups to Marcia to bring into the living room while he fixes the table. Right. He like took the leaf out of the table, you know, like to make it smaller, thinking like, oh, well, now well, there'd be less stuff to damage. Like, yeah, this was the logic going through their head. And then they just go back to the living room to watch TV and relax. It's like, I'm trying to watch Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will fucking watch. Yeah, Jeopardy. yeah. Like, nothing. I will know what this phrase is, this per, this thing, yeah, this place yeah. or thing or food. And just on the, Jeopardy, I'm picturing like little eye twitch from his thing. It's like nothing is wrong here. We're just a happy family. <laughs> I bet but, like when the eggs broke on the carpet from earlier, I bet you were like smugly thinking this would never happen to us because we don't buy eggs. Well, for us, it would be fucking like just egg or <laughs> <laughs> applesauce or something. Peanut butter. Honestly, if we ever get haunted, it's going to be something to do with peanut butter because that's. 90% of what I eat. I feel like he should uh, he should have screwed the legs of the table to the floor and be like, okay, motherfucker, if you're going to do this shit to annoy us, I saw you struggle with that fucking knife block because it was screwed in. I'm screwing this shit and I'm going to make your ass struggle <laughs> flip the table. Well, it's funny that you should say that. That is something that he resorts to. Not quite this early on but next week probably we will talk about that this is this is going to be a two-part spoiler alert yeah yeah but anyway the whole time everything every time anything was happening it was like let's just sit down and watch tv and pretend like nothing is going on so they did do that and again like the table flipping over a couple times it was just like whatever and then later they were like you know it's been a long day let's go to bed so Jerry's in the bathroom having a shave and he, heard, he hears a scream coming from Marsha's room. He runs in to find that her TV has fallen from its shelf again, only this time it actually landed on her ankle. Ooh. Yeah. Now, thankfully, it didn't do any real harm. This was a smaller TV unit. <laughs> I guess it would have been like a portable, yeah. as portable as they came in the 70s. It also goes to show how much, like, I'm not going to say that she was spoiled, but how many, how much stuff that they would have for Marcia. Like her room was tiny and it was the seventies and she had her own TV in there. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. So anyway, they gave up on the idea of bed. They settled down in the living room to watch TV. The movie The Battle of the Bulge is what they watched. Okay. Yeah. I thought this was like a movie about male strippers, but apparently no. the Battle of a Bulge <laughs> Battle of the Bulge is like from World War Two. And at one point Marcia gets up to go to the bathroom and they hear a commotion from the bathroom they run in laura hobbles 
They find Marcia with her hands over her head protecting herself from flying toiletries. She had already been hit hard on the head by an iron shower curtain rod. Again, cannot stress this enough, but the 1970s, so of course the shower curtain rod had to be made of pure iron. (laughs) And the bottles, all the toiletries were all glass bottles. There was no fucking plastic apparently, so they're all now lying on the floor broken. And she's just cowering in the middle of this little bathroom. Uh-huh. Thankfully, again, she was not too severely injured, but she like the hard hit on the head, I guess, like was enough to cause a lump because they reference it quite a lot. And they once again get to work just cleaning everything up and getting back to some sort of normal behavior, I guess. As soon as the bathroom was tidy, they discover that all of the curtains had been ripped down again. And they're just like, it's, it was one thing after another, but that was thankfully it for the Saturday night. That was the end of all the activity. They sat in the living room watching TV until around 3 a.m. when they finally felt safe enough to go back to bed. Jerry woke up around 8.30 on Sunday morning and he goes into the kitchen to make breakfast for everyone, only to discover, once again, the table and all of the chairs flipped over and the fridge had been moved just to block the back door completely i thought that was fairly poignant like you know what i mean and kind of scary but what really bothered him was that all of this had happened silently Mm -hmm. anyway he goes into the bedroom to report the findings to laura and as he began the crucifix and the bless our home picture of jesus on the bedroom wall was ripped off nails and all and thrown on the floor uh fucking metal man (laughs) so yeah the screwing doesn't help yeah yeah it's like it's getting stronger maybe well i mean the fridge is 300 pounds i'm sure the nails in the wall were probably not that difficult but it was the fact that it was the crucifix and the picture of jesus remember like this family are pious holy yeah yeah laura still with her injured foot was desperately trying to get up and out of the room when they heard more commotion coming from marcia's room The large wooden bureau had fallen over, just barely missing Marcia where she was still sleeping in her bed. She didn't wake up. Damn. I know. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But as Laura shambled into the room to try and see what had happened in there, another crucifix was thrown so hard that it smashed into pieces on the carpeted floor. On carpet? Yeah. Damn. Then they ran to the noise in the living room where the three recliners were flopping, tipping, to and fro and leaving the floor altogether. That's a quote. While the TV repeatedly made sounds like a doorbell. The fuck? <laughs> I don't know. Is this like ding dong ding? Or is it one of those fancy doorbells like ba 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 ba? You know? Oh yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah, my sister <laughs> has that, right? I know. Just some weird one so many people have that. But anyway, <laughs> Laura calls their friends um the hoffmans for some reason i'm not sure why she calls the hoffmans screaming to send help she's like there's something strange going on here and marcia finally wakes up and runs in just to join the family in fucking terror jerry brings them out to the enclosed porch because like what the fuck else do you do in this situation but when they get to the porch the couch that's in there where he had thrown all the groceries yesterday just lifts up off the ground and floats about four feet off the ground, hovering there, and then just slams back down. Uh. One of the things that he had thrown on there the day before was a 50-pound bag of dog food. And this thing, like couch, dog food and all, just lifts straight up in the air. 
Jerry looks over the road and sees his cop friend's daughter out walking the dog. So he shouts over to get her dad over here now. And the next thing, her dad comes running over, putting a coat over what the author called his, quote, night clothes. The fuck? Yeah. So I'm picturing this as like a corset, leather jockstrap <laughs> and suspenders. Like, by day, it's Officer Holsworth. But by night, Sergeant Spanks. <laughs> You're ridiculous. I'm pretty sure he just meant pajamas. But anyway, that's where we're going to leave the story this week. It's nuts. Like, it's pure insanity. But... I had to leave it there because there's like so much more to go. So we'll leave it with Sergeant Spanks lighting up a cigarette and just taking in the view of the whole house. But join us next week when the Gooden family go 1970s viral. <laughs> what yeah, the fuck? They actually do go viral. But real quick before we finish up, like the fact that Marcy was asleep, right? This got me thinking of the Enfield haunting because it was one of the points in that that we were like, these kids can sleep through anything and like guy playfair said this something more or less the exact same but i'm like the kids are also burning through their adrenaline while all this shit's going on like she finally got to sleep at three o'clock in the morning after a long ass day of like a day trip to the cousin's house and then all of the these like paranormal fucking attacks on the whole family yeah like her mom's foot bleeding all over the floor and everything Mm mm-hmm so maybe that's why she was sleeping through everything. You know what I mean? I yeah. never really thought of it as plainly, as yeah. logically as that. Yeah. In the Enfield haunting, it seemed kind of like this entity has some sort of hold over the children when in actuality they had just burnt out all their fucking resources. And yeah. Good like, point. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, gang, hope you all enjoyed that. Their first installment of 966 Lindley Street. There will be a video coming out on the Weekly Creep YouTube page at some stage this week. I'm hoping, I'm aiming to have it out on Thursday, but it possibly will be Friday. Um, So definitely keep your eye out on there. If you follow us on YouTube, go on, maybe hit the little notification button. Um, If you don't follow us on YouTube, go on and subscribe and then hit the little notification (laughs) button and you will get the video. It's going to be a one-off for now, but hopefully in the future we can do more of a similar ilk. And um, don't forget to go watch Dulce's Twitch streams, Late Bloomer 34 Check out her YouTube channel, uh, Dulce's Recreations. There you go. <laughs> and yeah, just don't forget to leave us nice ratings and reviews and all that good stuff. Thank you all very much for listening and enjoy the rest of your week. Yay. Happy Monday, everybody. Bye. Bye.